0: Hi folks, it's Rabbi Sharon Browse here. You are listening to IKAR's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our guest speakers, our teachers, anything we think worth listening to that we can capture, you can hear right here. Thank you so much for being with us. A few years ago, I shared on Yom Kippur that I had just returned from an extraordinary gathering in Jerusalem that was convened by Israel's former president, Ruvi Rivlin. This was a small and very diverse group of Israelis and diaspora Jews, rabbis, professors, and activists from Tel Aviv, from hilltop settlements from Los Angeles, from Paris, Hong Kong, Buenos Aires, and Budapest. It included among others, two Haredi, two ultra-Orthodox settler rabbis, and three women rabbis. We were brought together in Jerusalem to consider what, if anything, unites us as a Jewish people, particularly in those polarizing times. On the last day of our convening, I was asked to address the president in order to share one American Jewish perspective on these matters, and I did. I expressed my wonder and my gratitude at the miracle of the state of Israel, a place of refuge for Jews from around the world, a homeland, and a heartland for our people after generations of exile, persecution, and genocide. And I also shared that I, like many American Jews, was deeply distressed by Israel's continued military occupation of the West Bank, which has been denying the basic rights of millions of Palestinians with policies that threatened to make a mockery both of our Jewish values and of democratic norms. I was particularly pained, I said, as a rabbi to see some of those who call themselves religious use our sacred texts to justify policies of oppression and acts of violence toward our Palestinian neighbors and toward other Jews. After my talk, One of the ultra-Orthodox rabbis, a leader of the settler movement, confronted me in great distress. He accused me of spreading lies and maligning him and his community. And as he spoke to me, a number of people gathered around us to witness this heated exchange. And then I heard him say that he was not only angry, he was also hurt. And I have to tell you that his admission of vulnerability was so unexpected that I asked him if he would be willing to sit with me and help me understand more. And that's when something absolutely extraordinary happened. He and his wife and I sat down for lunch, and we talked for nearly three hours. We talked about the settlement enterprise, which he saw as the fulfillment of the biblical promise of a displaced people to inherit the land, a return to the land for which we are indigenous. I explained to him that I saw the settlements as an engine of human rights abuses and a danger to the state of Israel. We spoke about restrictions on the freedom of Palestinians, which he saw as necessary for Jewish Israeli security, and I saw as violations of basic principles of both Torah and democracy. We shared our understanding of the Bible's 36 commandments regarding the treatment of the stranger, which he deemed as largely inapplicable to the current political reality, and I said that I saw as the very essence of who we are called to be in the world, the very essence of our religious commitment, aspirational principles that demanded of us concrete moral action. He argued that violent Jewish extremism existed only in rare and very isolated incidents I argued that it was far more prevalent than he was admitting. A desecration of God's name that demanded unequivocal opposition and condemnation. And we also talked about the growing rifts between religious and secular in Israel, between right and left, between Israeli and diaspora Jews, something that a lot of us, that both of us were concerned with. So the conversation ended After nearly three hours, when he invited me to come spend Shabbat at his settlement, and I invited him to come spend Shabbat here at Icar, and we both respectfully declined, but we said that we would be willing to meet again, potentially, for coffee next time I was in Jerusalem. My hands trembled for two days after this conversation. Not only did he and I disagree, but I have to tell you that I found his positions dangerous, And I'm very certain that he felt exactly the same way about mine. And even still, I could see his earnestness. I could see his concern for his children, for his community, for Torah, and for the Jewish people. And so, as I told you a couple of years ago on Yom Kippur, I walked away from this meeting with a strange feeling of tenderness toward this man. I've been thinking a lot about this meeting this past year through the election and through the insurrection, through the pandemic and climate devastation, we increasingly see those who hold opposing political views not only as ideological foes, but as existential threats. And it's really hard not to because there's so much at stake. And we know that this has made it hard for all of us personally. It's made it hard to maintain friendships and even family relationships with people who are on the other side of the ideological divide. It's even hard to go to shul together, or to share a meal together. So naturally, all of us find ourselves self-segregating into ideological bubbles. We have these close relationships, predominantly with people who share our own perspectives, and I know that many of you have seen this in your own lives and you've come to talk to me about it too. But here's the problem. What we know about the way that social communities work is that people who have more robust social ties outside of their immediate groups, whether those groups are racial, or ethnic, or religious groups, or political groups, tend to be more open-minded and less rigid in their thinking. Because it turns out that it's far easier to empathize with another person's and their community struggles if you actually know them. I remember after the 2016 election, Rabbi Barbarzaki, who's in this room somewhere, Where are you, RBZ? Rabbi Zaki announced that she wanted to go, I don't know if you remember this, to the reddest county in the reddest state and sit in a cafe and buy coffee for anyone who was willing to explain their views and their votes, which she found not only morally repugnant, but also incomprehensible, if I may put words in your mouth. And a few other people shared similar plans. And I'm assuming it won't surprise you to know that I did not want to do that. I did not want to schmooze with people who I felt were jeopardizing our safety and the future of this country. I wanted a reckoning. At the heart of the political rifts in our country is a real ideological disagreement, much of which is rooted in conscious and subconscious conditioning around white supremacy. And I believed that if nothing else, the 2016 election taught us that the most urgent task that we faced as a country was to expose and to dismantle unjust systems, not to spend our time trying to better understand a movement that was clearly and openly fueled by ignorance, racism, and fear. Supremacist thinking must not be accommodated, I preached from right here again and again over these last five years. It must be eradicated. The real problem in our country is not polarization, it's injustice. But even still, I could not ignore the overwhelming insistence in our tradition that we take the Torah of open-hearted disagreement seriously. There must be a reason that we're called again and again and again to stretch ourselves, to engage, to learn from those who see the world differently than we do. Our tradition lifts up the model of Reish Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan, these two perfectly matched scholars and friends who knew and understood that challenges and disagreements would only strengthen their arguments until the truth was uncovered. Rabbi Eleazar Benazaria teaches that the rabbis would gather in balei asufot, in complex, dynamic groups of scholars who held different perspectives so that they could learn from each other and not simply have their own positions reinforced. Make your ear an afarkeset like a funnel our tradition says, try to cultivate a heart that's able to understand someone's perspective that's not your own. The Maharal of Prague teaches us what the virtue of this kind of thinking is. He writes, the world's not so simple. Life is complicated. That's not an invitation to moral relativism. It's an invitation to train our hearts to be discerning and to learn from absolutely everyone in the quest for greater truth. Well, once again, this past week, my meeting with the rabbi in Jerusalem was top of mind. When the Washington DC branch of a youth climate action group called Sunrise DC publicly disengaged from a freedom to vote rally, because they said they were unwilling to stand in the same trenches as Zionists. They also said that moving forward, they would no longer join any coalitions with Zionist organizations, and they named three prominent progressive Jewish organizations that have worked for years to build a more just and inclusive multiracial democracy. The Religious Action Center, the National Council for Jewish Women, and the Jewish Council on Public Affairs. And I have to say that in doing this, this week, they dangerously shifted the Overton window holding Jewish organizations to a different standard than any other, and treating Israel unlike any other state actor. Their thinking requires two logical leaps. First, the absolute and categorical alignment of Israel and all Israelis and all supporters of Israel with villainy. And second, the notion of villainy by association. Any Jew, according to their thinking, who does not actively distance from Israel, is responsible for its worst policies and positions. This, to be clear, would mean that about 90% of American Jews, including many of the people in this community, would be expelled, expunged, excommunicated from their movement for climate justice. And this is clearly anti-Semitic. And it's not only anti-Semitic. It's also foolishly self destructive. As Representative Jamie Raskin so perfectly said this week, for the life of me, at a time when racism, anti Semitism, and right wing authoritarianism are on the march in the United States and all over the world, I cannot comprehend the political or moral logic of this statement from a progressive group committed to saving humanity from climate disaster. Anti Semitic, self destructive, and reflective of the same kind of narrow thinking that's made public discourse in our country so toxic. And I say this today with great sadness. It's personally painful for me and for many of us. I say this in the hopes that speaking honestly about antisemitism among, will awaken sensitivity among friends and allies that is now sorely lacking in many of these justice spaces. As Lirit mentioned earlier, many of the most well-known epic stories of the Torah appear in this week's Parsha. And in one of those episodes, Abraham famously stands before God and argues on the strength of his moral intuition, that the people of the wicked city of Sodom should be saved. If you read this text closely, he actually engages in a very sophisticated moral sleight of hand. First, he asks God to save any innocent people who live there, and then he demands that God save the whole city on behalf of whatever innocent people live there. And my dear friend Rabbi Claudia Kreiman from Boston has been lifting up the teachings lately of an 18th century Ladino rabbi named Yaakov Kuli who writes in Yalkut Me'am ez that Abraham understood that God wanted to judge the entire city of Sodom without paying attention to individuals. So when Abraham stood before God, what he was really saying is, I beg you, judge each individual by himself. Judge each individual by himself. So Abraham's assumption was, if there are any decent people in this place, then the place can't be all rotten. Even just a few good people can transform a society. How dare you condemn an entire society because you don't like the behavior of some. And that actually is an incredibly hopeful outlook. It's never too late to transform a society or even a nation, whether that is the United States of America, whether that is Israel or any other place, but to condemn an entire nation or an entire people because you don't like the actions of some of them, to collectivize rather than to individualize, there's a word for that kind of moral failure, and that word is racism. Think of how different Abraham's thinking is from today's increasingly normalized discourse. You could argue that Sunrise DC is just a small fringe group of leaders from a decentralized organization, that what they wrote doesn't even deserve our time, our heartache, our attention at all. But to tell you the truth, I've been tracking this conversation for decades now. I have heard warnings for at least a decade and a half that soon there will be no place for Jews in movements for justice unless they explicitly disavow Israel and identify as anti-Zionist. And of course, warnings like that, statements like these, they only serve to push us all further away into our own silos. Who wants to be in a place that held so much disdain for us, for our history, for our people? So we respond with our own condemnations and our own restrictions. Maybe you read in this morning's paper that the state of Israel just yesterday condemned six Palestinian organizations, some of the leaders in Palestinian civil society fighting for human rights as terrorist organizations. And it's not only the state that does that. In 2010, Hillel International established standards of partnership, do you know about this? That prohibit Hillels from co-sponsoring events with organizations or individuals that are deemed anti-Israel, even if the program has nothing at all to do with Israel and Palestine. Critics of this policy, including some of my friends who are directors of Hillel's themselves, have said that these standards effectively cut off the possibility of real encounter and partnership with any Palestinians on campus, and with many of the other groups that could probably benefit from being in relationship with the Jewish community, frankly, and vice versa. So here's the problem, folks. The only way we learn from each other is by engaging each other and by listening compassionately even when it hurts and yet we've made it almost impossible to actually engage one another. So I want to close today by telling you a coda to the encounter I had with my lunchmate in Jerusalem a few years ago. In August, just two months ago, in Israel Hayom, there was a report, an article, that said that this same rabbi issued a bombshell bombshell statement aggressively condemning violence in his community and supporting the rights of non-Orthodox Jews to gather and to pray at the Western Wall without being harassed. And some of his supporters, his most zealous supporters, were outraged, and they were confused. They read his words as a kind of betrayal. And the rabbi explained that he felt compelled to speak out publicly against what he saw as a dangerous set of norms and even violence emerging in his community. So everyone's asking what caused his change of heart. And his associates are quoted in this article saying that it was a couple of meetings that he had had a couple of years before with a few people whose perspectives differed greatly from his own. One of those encounters, they say, was the lunch that he had with me. (laughs) So I don't know. To be honest, I don't know how pivotal that meeting really was in the development of this rabbi's thinking, and it, it's not lost on me that clearly he was already open to risking the opprobrium of his entire community by even showing up at a conference with, God forbid, secular Jews and women rabbis. And yet his growing openness to acknowledge the danger of violent extremism in parts of the religious and ultra-nationalist community feels really significant. I can tell you that from my side our lunches convinced me of something counterinstinctual, which I needed to be reminded of again this week after the Sunrise DC statement that we can't give up on each other. I'm thinking back to RBZ, to Rabbi Zaki looking for coffee dates in Boone County, Arkansas, and I had clearly created a false binary, which I now regret. The choice today is not between justice and human understanding, clearly we need one in order to achieve the other. We might feel more righteous talking only to ourselves, but the only way that we grow in empathy is by encountering the other. Obviously, in a society like ours that's scarred by structural and systemic power imbalances, meetings like this can be not only fraught, but actually dangerous, and I'm well aware that sitting together for lunch is no panacea. My lunchmate did not change my views of the settlement enterprise, and I don't think that he'd approve of much of what we do here at ICAR. But even still, I find myself profoundly grateful that two years ago, two rabbis from different worlds could sit across a table and hear each other and neither of us walked away for nearly three hours because the just society that we strive to build will have to make space for both of us. And I hope that Sunrise DC can hear that too, that there is no collective liberation without us all. That doesn't mean capitulating to the views of an ideological foe, but it does mean seeing each other not as enemies but as flawed, striving, fellow human beings. And it means remembering that the just, sustainable society that we have to build can only come about when we work together. May we recognize that there will be no collective liberation as long as any form of racism, including anti-Semitism, persists in this world. May we stay in the fight even when we're tempted to flee because of hatred and cruelty. May we, like Abraham, judge every individual by her own merits, and may we remember that even a few good people can transform a movement, a society, even a nation. And may we continue to stretch open the conversation even when our hearts want to close. May we find a way to work, to build, and to dream together. Shabbat shalom. Hi, it's Mayim Bialik, actor, neuroscientist, Ekar member, and lover of all things Jewish. Do you like what you're listening to? Please consider donating to eCar so that we can continue creating more podcasts and fulfilling our mission of harnessing untapped energy in the Jewish community to reanimate Jewish life, embody moral courage, nurture the spirit, and work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Why don't you visit our website at ekar laorg and give today.